the wise man said, don't ask me. All I know is you'll be sorry. Sorry when I'm dead, dead and gone. In a bitchin' place of glory. Holding a grudge can take a lifetime. And there's a lot that I got to say. I'll tell it to the world on my Hello, everybody. Welcome to Too Much Information. My name is Sean Arnold. As usual, hasn't changed. Same host. My guest tonight is Kenny Leon. Hey, Kenny. Hey. Too much information, huh? Yeah, man. Too much information. Wow. It's good to, it's good to chat with you. That's what happens when you have a podcast where you just talk about a bunch of stuff that is all over the place. <laughs> that way you don't. <laughs> so Kenny Leon is in the house. And he is literally in the house. <laughs> so I'm talking with my neighbor. Yeah, so my neighbor. So Kenny Leon is a Tony Award winning director. Uh, directs on Broadway. Has done The Wiz Live for NBC recently. Hairspray Live for NBC recently. Uh, did Raisin in the Sun for television as well as the Broadway production twice on Broadway twice is the creative director um, and founder of true colors theater company here in Atlanta was the, is it creative director or artistic director, artistic, director. artistic director. I'm sorry. Same thing. Or was the artistic directory or artistic directory, artistic director at the Alliance theater mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, if I recall too, there was a, there weren't a whole lot of African American artistic directors at big theaters at the time when you got that gig. Were there? It's, it's still about the same. <laughs> yeah, oh, really. <laughs> when I was artistic director in the nineties, it was like maybe it was George Wolf at mm. the Public Theater, and that was that was about it. Uh, yeah, one guy at the Penumbra Theater in Minneapolis, but that was an African American uh, culturally specific theater. So, you know, it's about, and now it's it's about one or less now. Wow. <laughs> that's kind of, that's kind of, I mean, what do, do you, th- I mean, what's the reason? Why do you think that is? I, I think it's a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, uh, you know me, I embrace all people, love all people, but I still think that we have a race problem in America. I agree. We just have a tough problem. So, um, um. So that's part of it. Uh, second part of it is that historically, you know, if you trace trace poverty from its beginning to now, you know, you still have a generation of people who haven't had the opportunity to to even realize that there are jobs uh, that are out there that no one in this family has ever gone into that area. You know what I mean? So there, there, are, there are communities in, in America where, you know, like in my old neighborhood in St. Petersburg, Florida, you know, there's some cats who are still on the corner, still in that same spot, you know, and some people don't know of anybody who's made it out of their neighborhoods, you know what I mean? So for it's sort of a big deal for, for me to go home and say, oh, I run a theater company or I'm on Broadway or I do television, you know, it's not that many folks that get out of St. Petersburg, Florida. But, you know, it's changing. Angela Bassett, we're from the same town. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, we're both from St. Petersburg, Florida. So let me ask you this then, so because this is what's interesting for me, and this is, I, I think we're all probably to a degree uh, colored or biased by our background and where mm-hmm. we came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what's interesting to me about the arts 
and uh, it just in general or specifically the theater arts music so 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 the obviously there's music in the arts there's theater there's there's a lot of different things but it feels like and again i'm sort of a rural georgian i mean i grew up in rural georgia it feels like sometimes for people that the arts are considered soft Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know what's the right word, but like, so for example, when I was coming up, it seems like kids in my age, and I was a teenager in the 80s and 90s, mm-hmm. that if you wanted to play music, that was kind of okay. But if you wanted to be in the theater, like it wasn't masculine or it wasn't, and it seems like similar to kind of the rural experience I grew up in, probably mm-hmm. in the, the black community maybe where it's well, harder. I don't think we had that. I mean, I, I don't, at least I didn't call it being soft because, you know, you had you would watch people like James Earl Jones, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Clint Eastwood. Uh, so we saw people in the arts as like, oh, they made it. But we thought that was out of, out of our reach. We may have thought like like in ninth grade I was taking – violin lessons now that was that was thought of as something like, man you're playing a violin and i was like just be, being like uh putting it down as i'm taking violin lessons i'm like making fun right. of the teacher and making fun of violin now i wish i had have stayed with that but that was soft but um acting was like oh you're gonna be a movie star well oh no yeah but i'm and i'm not thinking in terms of acting i'm thinking in terms of theater because i feel like people tend to to separate film and movie stars from theater because I know people like this. I know mm-hmm. people that love movies and you couldn't drag them to a play mm-hmm. if you know and the funny thing is is I didn't even really truly enjoy the theater very much mm-hmm. until we got involved with True Colors mm-hmm. and so I was almost even forced into the art form and then I was like oh my gosh how have I not this is tremendous. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But but I it's weird. Like I just felt like I had this thing as like movies are cool, but the theater is mm. too highbrow for me, I guess. Well, or, I may I mean I can see how some people think of it um as but I wouldn't refer to it as, as they thought it was soft. Because like I said, they thought like violin was soft or <laughs> that's what a girl does. But um uh, they thought of it as it's a different class, mm, you right. know. So it's a it's a class issue. It's like ah, that's yeah, highbrow is a good thing. You know what I mean? Like ah, that's not not for me. And even growing up, you know, I'm a I'm a I play golf as much as I can now. <laughs> but growing up in Florida, it was like golf. That's the game for for big stomach white guys and rich folks to go on vacation. And it's so boring. It takes so long. So you know, but now I'm like man, yeah, it is much more than that. So did you have like a, was there an aha moment where you, I mean, or did you just sort of go, Hey, there's a school play or what was the thing that sort of said, I mean, I'm no, I used to shot. like growing up, you know, I grew up in the church, you know, with my grandmother, and my yeah. mother. So we would go into church and it's like, it was a chance to clown around and to be funny and to get attention. So when we went to church, you know, I'll be in the play, I'll be Joseph, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be pilot, you know what I mean? So, uh, Acting, getting in front of people, being funny, that was always a cool, cool thing to do when you couldn't make the starting starting team uh, in <laughs> basketball or, you know, I play a little baseball, you know, but, you know, I kind of wanted to do it all, which I sort of sort of did. I have a, a side note. I have a hilarious, not hilarious, but a, a theory about 
because people, and I know this isn't universally true, but they're like, well, actors always seem really short. And Short? Short, yes. It's male actors, obviously, specifically. And one of the things I said, which seems logical to me, is I go, well, yeah, because, you know, I'm six foot four and weigh 240 pounds. And from the time I was whatever, I got just naturally, you know, every coach that saw me was like, do you play? Come play, right? Because I just had physical size. Uh, but it seems like, there's lots of musicians this way too, because I think maybe in high school or growing up, they people because of their size maybe didn't drive them towards sports and they wanted to have stuff to do. So they ended up acting or playing an instrument or participating in some other way. And those are mm. ways you can go where size isn't necessarily a a precondition, if you will, of someone looking at you going, You should be on the football team. Right. You know, <laughs> where Yeah, if you're born if you're born tall and big, yeah, they you gotta play. Well they'll find you. you but know. <laughs> they also you know, there are quite a few tall No, there are, there are, but I think actors. That, well, well sure. I mean there's there's <laughs> definitely guys that whatever. It's just like I said, it's just fascinating because I I found this sort of later in life. Even though I'm a movie nut, which is weird because right. I've seen I watch everything. Well, I think you probably just thought it was highbrow for rich people and for people who didn't care about everybody. And it's kind of sort of the way I, I felt about the opera. Yeah, you know. So, and I think there still is some theater that is highbrow and some theater that is elitist. You know what I mean? Certainly, True Colors theater is not that. You know, it's all no. inclusive and embracing of you know a lot many cultures. So you know, but yeah, I can see. Yeah, uh, I've 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 said I've been in theaters in the audience. In places that I didn't want to be. It's like, oh, this is not good. This is not me. Well, too, I think, you know, what's awesome about True Colors is is that I think the stories that you guys pick to do are very poignant and relevant. Mm -hmm. right. And I think they're modern. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the other thing I think when people think about the theater, and I'll say it, even though I consider myself a pretty educated guy, like I've never gotten like Shakespeare. It's just too, <laughs> it's too much, right? It's like the language is too convoluted that's but that's what's so beautiful about theater some people hate that some people some people hate tennessee williams some people hate august wilson so it's like it's about it's like a podcast it's like there's some <laughs> exactly some voices you want to listen to and you tune and you want to hear sean arnold you might not want to hear kenny leon's show <laughs> so yeah but yeah I, but shakespeare you're right because it's it, you know it's it's foreign to a lot of us you sure. know it's um it's you know it's a different culture it's a different rhythm it's a different tempo it's a different character it's a different you know what i mean but when you get to some shakespeare that's done right where the person sounds like like you and i just are sitting here talking when they make it that plain then it's great the f unfortunate thing is it's been so much bad Shakespeare <laughs> so you've seen so much bad Shakespeare that you hate it it's like saying hearing bad blues it's right like you just hear right, enough right, bad right. blues or it's bad like, jazz oh, where guys can't jam God. yeah it's like yeah. oh so uh yeah but I understand what you mean so did you so was acting the first thing and then like when did the directing did you always well feel first like of all growing up I, I mean I was doing I was acting and church and I was acting in a program called Oprah Bound that's where me and Angela Bassett met yeah, and we, were, we would act together in that and because that was just fun but I didn't act in my high school I came to Atlanta to go to college I mean and when I got to college here I was a political science major I was going to do something my folks knew you know I was going to be a lawyer or where'd you go to school Clark College Clark okay. Atlanta University so I went to Clark and then I got there and I ran into these cool people you know like Bill Nunn 
you know, who passed away this year. You know, he played Radio Raheem and did all of Spike Lee's movies. And I met Spike Lee during that time. You know, he was wow. at Morehouse. And Samuel L. Jackson was, you know, around during that time. So I met all these people. His wife, Latanya Richardson, who was a great actress. And I started seeing all these folks. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. So I liked hanging with the people. So I started hanging with those people. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, maybe I can do this. So then I started acting. I started acting, and then I looked a certain way at a certain time so I could do commercials, I could do, you know, billboard work and stuff like that. And then that one day when I, when I, when I directed my first piece called The Wishing Place, it was a crazy-ass crazy play. But when I did Was that, that at Clark? No. Later? I, yeah, that was much later. That was later. Was uh, it a local theater, or where yeah, did you do Academy it? Yeah, the- Academy Theater here in Atlanta. And I was a member of the company, so you could act... Um, and the plays at night, like Hamlet, or plays like Split Second, or uh, Glass Menagerie, you can act in those plays. And then we would also do a lot of social work. So we would do go into prisons and teach prisoners acting skills. Oh wow! So I would do that, and then I would do I did something called People of the Brick, where we actually recruited homeless people. And uh, me and the playwright Barbara Lebo, we worked with homeless people that we just went out there and didn't know anything about, and just introduced ourselves and got them involved and we started teaching them acting stuff so they could tell their stories about being homeless and then we ended up putting it on for the public and we ended up giving them all the money and then you know they could some of them can get off the street some of them could not get off the street but what you learn about work with a homeless population is that they're not a monolithic group so it taught me some things so now when I started doing work with homeless population and working in the prison situation and working with disabled people I started putting intent behind my legitimate plays. So that's why when I when I pick a play to do on Broadway or pick a television project or a film project, it's always some social need behind it because early in my career I got to know, you know, the broader community and got it. so it gave me a reason like that's why you do plays. You don't do plays because like you said, it's an elitist thing or it's a soft thing. You do plays because you're trying to change people's lives or you're trying to give them a different perspective than they normally would have just walking down the street. And the fact that everybody is human, it's like, oh, they're human. So that might be a black human or it might be a Jewish human or it might be a, a northern human, a human that's different from me, but we start out in the place that we're human. Maybe it'll make me better if I can open up just to listen to part of their stories. So that's why I got into it because we tell each other's stories, we listen to each other's stories. So I go into a lot of plays, like I see so many plays, just because I see plays that I wouldn't do, plays that I wouldn't naturally be attracted to because I'm trying to understand other human beings. So next week in New York, I'm gonna see that production with Sally Field and the Glass Menagerie, just because I wouldn't do it exactly the way they did. They have a girl with, uh, uh, I think, muscular dystrophy plan that role you know so she's got to struggle oh, wow. out of that wheelchair so i'm seeing that and then i'm saying hello dolly with bet mittler and so i'm saying things that are you know not in my lane but it i grow as a person and an artist when i'm exposed to that isn't it interesting how you can sort of put your finger occasionally on these sort of transformative moments so a little story about me that maybe you'll find interesting so again where i grew up i mean a church town you know, very religious, rural, um, very conservative, pretty white. Um, now I had a lot of exposure to, to black people because of sports, but 
people that didn't generally weren't. It was a fairly, I guess, segregated community, not just by. You had a lot of uh, black baseball players. We had a number, but basketball. I mean, I played basketball. I played oh, basketball. basketball too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, oh yeah, um, yeah. We love that sport. Yeah, <laughs> so um, that were great friends of mine, you know. And but so again, I was like the young Republican kind of guy, you know, that whole thing. And then I go off to college, and even going to a place like Mercer, which is a private college in the middle of Georgia in a smaller place, all of a sudden I started to be exposed to not so people from other parts of the country which is a huge, you know, because again, in Cartersville, Georgia, it's pretty homogenous when it comes to, like, most people are from there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, it, there were two big things that happened, and, and a lot of international, because I played baseball in college, and, excuse me, I met soccer players from Europe and golfers from Scandinavia and, you know, South American guys that played soccer or whatever. And... uh then your your cultural windows start to open, and you're like, wait a second, there's a lot more out there than just sort of what I was in. Mm-hmm. And also, so the the two things is number one, I was in a history class, and we got to the section on Bobby Kennedy, and uh, I started to read a lot about Bobby. And the interesting thing about Bobby is he was really the star, mm-hmm. like JFK was president, and all that. But Bobby was the one that they thought that was going to be the one that was going to do it all. Mm-hmm. He was smarter than Jack. He was more driven than Jack. I mean, all those things, but you know, Jack went off and was a war hero and came back in time and place and all that. And had Bobby not died, I, you know, gotten killed. I fully believe he would have been president. Um, but the thing that really moved me was so amazing was the speech he gave in, I believe it was in Mississippi. Mm-hmm. The, you mean after Dr. King died? When Dr. King got killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's crazy to me is, you know, obviously no internet, none of that. Like they told him so he could tell everyone because mm-hmm. people didn't know yet. And that obviously is a Democrat in the South, and especially in a place like that, there was a lot of African-American people in the crowd. And so first of all, can you imagine the weight of having to deliver that news? Mm-hmm. And then he did not write that speech. Mm-hmm. He basically just went out there and talked. And the speech is two and a half, three minutes long. I personally think it's one of the maybe five best speeches in American history. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's all about, you know, unity, but that we, we can't let hate prevail. And, you know, just a lot of these sort of themes. And that's when I started to question my own sort of positioning on lots of things. Then the second thing that happened to me was I was, I lived in an apartment complex out in, in, uh, in uh, East Macon. And, I came back one day and was, and it was one of those deals where, you know, you kind of walk underneath and the doors on the apartments are inside like a concrete open kind of walkway. And so your door faces someone else's door across the way. And we were pretty new to the apartment. I didn't know. And I was walking in and I see at the door across from mine, the biggest black guy I've ever seen probably in my life, um, fiddling with the door, you know, trying to get in. And in retrospect now, this is kind of, it's really embarrassing. It's almost like I'm ashamed of it. But my first thought was he's breaking into this place, right? Which is awful. But again, and we'll talk about this in a minute, you know, the race problem. I mean, I think a lot of it is sort of driven by those instinctual things that we shouldn't have, but 
we do like mm -hmm. that. Like if I see someone walking towards me of a different color, I need to cross the street or, you know, those kinds of anecdotes you hear. So I am now on the defensive, right? And I'm going, I just need to get in my apartment because this guy was six, eight, six, nine, you know, probably weighed 250, 260 pounds and whatever. And then I thought for a second and I literally remember going, you are an asshole. Like you don't know this guy from Adam's house cat. You've automatically assumed that he's whatever. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe he's not, maybe he actually needs some help or doesn't know where he is or whatever. So I turned around and I said, Hey man, is everything cool? And he goes, man, we just moved in here and I cannot get my key to work. <laughs> and so I said, oh, okay. And I said, he goes, my roommate's on his way. He's behind me, but I don't know how far he is behind me. <laughs> and I said, well, do you want to come over here? Use the phone because no cell phones. It's like, do you want to hang out until you want to stick a note on the door basically and hang out in my place until he gets back or you want to come use the phone or whatever? And he was like, yeah, sure. So this guy's name was Mark, and he was on the Mercer basketball team hmm. from the south side of Chicago. From the south side of Chicago to Macon, Georgia. So he came over and sat down, and we started to talk just in general. And he was telling me where he's from and all this. And I was like, man, this guy's this is a pretty cool dude, you know? And so long story short, um, his roommate came back and my roommate came back and I said, well, do you, you know, he was like, well, we ought to hang out sometime. Do you play cards? I was like, yeah, I love to play cards. And he's like, why don't we get, so like they taught us how to play tonk and we taught them how to play, you know, like there was a lot of those like sort of cultural card games. But over time, this is what's crazy. I learned from Mark coming to Macon, Georgia. He's like, there's no white people where I come from. South side of Chicago, like where I live. I'm from the ghetto and this is weird. Like I'm down here and it's nothing but white people. I'm in the middle of the country. It's the South. I have all these preconceptions about the South. Cause this was in 94. I mean, so we're not far removed from, you know, I mean, it's still bad, but I mean, when it was really bad, you know, even in the late, you know, mid eighties, you had stuff going on in the mm -hmm. deep South. And I started to realize that all of these crazy misconceptions that I had about his culture, he had almost the same misconceptions about my culture mm -hmm. because neither of us had ever had an opportunity to spend any time mm -hmm. with somebody that could dispel all those myths. Um, and that coupled with the other was like, Oh my gosh, like I have my vision of view of the world has been totally wrong for just about my whole life. Hmm. And, you know, we ended up, you know, being really good friends for our entire college experience. And, and, and it's funny though, even though we never really hung out in social situations because there was still that division, like he had his, hmm. and here's what's crazy, what happened. And this is how, and this is why I tell people it's hard to hate what you know. And I'm saying most time when people, if they say they hate gays or they say they hate black people, they don't know any. It's like you couldn't say that if you knew some people that were different than you because it's hard to hate something you know. It's easy to hate something you don't know. Mm -hmm. And just spend a little time with someone and it may change your perception because to your point, everyone's a human. Mm -hmm. So we were at this huge street festival. It's the, they have the Cherry Blossom Festival in Macon where they close the streets off and bring in bands. And we were down there and we're college kids and we're all drinking. And there were these local, there was this group of local black kids that were down there. 
and somebody said something and somebody came at me because I was the biggest guy in the group. And there was this little, it was a tussle and it could have probably escalated, you know, and they start yelling and there's probably five or six guys that are on the baseball team, you know, whatever. And these six or eight black guys that are from Macon and it's starting to really escalate. And I feel this humongous hand on my shoulder (laughs) and I look and it's Mark and Mark looked at those guys and he goes, is there a problem? And they're like, what do you mean? And he's like, this is my boy. Like y'all need to scoot. And it was him and you know, a bunch of the basketball guys. And they just looked at him, looked at me, turned around, walked off. Mm. And Mark just looked at me, didn't say anything. Cause he was his crew. And they just went on about mm-hmm. their business. Mm-hmm. And it seems like such a small act Right, but he didn't have to do that. I mean, certainly not have to put because those guys could have been all right. Let's go, and it could have turned into some crazy fight, you know, or whatever, which would ha- will happen with twenty year old jacked up dudes. <laughs> um, meaning us, you know, a bunch of testosterone filled athletes, you know, out mm-hmm. with their wearing their pride on their shoulder. But you know, and I just it's again like it just reinforces like man, I've just read stuff all wrong. Like, and it's almost like I you have to evaluate the man not the group. So I don't know. I mean, that was sort of my, my moment. Yeah. My moment when I was just like, we're all the same and there's good folks and there's bad folks. And the, the casing is, you know, does not dictate any of that. So it just was a strange, and I tell that story to people all the time because I, it's like, I wish everyone could have that experience. Like I almost Mm -hmm. wish you could be forced into a sit because I wasn't forced, but I put myself into a situation where I didn't have any choice but to engage mm-hmm. with him. And, you know, I made a friend and learned a ton about myself and somebody I didn't know a lot about and cultural things over the course of the next three or four years. It was pretty awesome. But that's why I always say that even your listeners probably would slap me for saying this. But I always think that um in a way, uh White Americans have further to go if they were willing to do it, you know, to make the country as great as it could be. They have further to go. And I say that because almost all successful blacks in America, they've had to be deal with uh, two cultures. You know what I mean? Like we wake up a successful person. You wake up. You. You get your kid out of bed. You you drop your kid off probably at a black public school. You go and you drop the the laundry off in your neighborhood. Then you go and you cross some little midsection of town where you go to work and you deal with white folks and you deal with to go to the post office and you deal with other white folks. Then you deal with you know like when I was at the theater, I had to go to the governor's mansion and. So after work, I'm going to the governor's mansion to do receptions. And then I meet different people in their homes and whatever. And then I go home back to my neighborhood in the black community. So I get to play and to learn from both cultures, black and white. When most of my successful whites, they've never been in a black black community. So they like they can wake up 
take their kid to the to the to the to the babysitter or or leave them at home and homeschool with the dad and then they go to their job which is probably on the white side of town and then they go back and they can be successful we cannot be successful if we just stayed in one culture so most of us are learning two cultures sure from from birth so i had a deal with i had a, a, a buddy tom key was a friend of mine actor in atlanta and i was like man you know because i swear i'm not racist so i what if we just expose each other to different aspects of our lives that we wouldn't normally get a chance to do so it's like okay i'll take you to my church this Sunday and then you take me to your church and then I'll take you to this like greasy spoon restaurant in the southwest side of Atlanta that you would never go to yeah can I go there yeah man nobody's gonna mess with you I promise and we <laughs> go there so it's like I found like when people ask me what can one person do it's like that's what we can do it's like if you have a friend that is from different culture or different ideas different races then let's exchange uh, opportunities to to let each person visit those. I mean, some of the best time I've had it's like I went to a, a Jewish wedding. I love that. I man. had a Jewish wedding. It's, <laughs> it's a great thing. I like breaking the glass and carrying on the chair, which was weird for a little Baptist kid. You know what I mean? Absolutely. For me, I mean so. But so, it's a, you're but, but you're you, right. It goes to your point though. Like it's like if you know people, if you get to know people. It's harder to hate people when you get yeah, to know them. And I never thought about it that way. That's such a that's a very profound way to look at it because you're right. I mean, and if you're in any minority, really, like you're forced to assimilate because yes. you're in the minority. Whereas. You're right. As a white, like as a black person, you have to assimilate or at least engage with white culture all the time. Huh. If you're a white person, you don't necessarily ever have to engage with black no. culture or Asian culture or gay culture or any of that. Like it's no. not part of your normal existence, and you can go all the time without doing it. I was talking to a, a good buddy of mine who happens to be uh, white, and we were talking about uh, actual Angela Bassett, and it was like, yeah. Yeah, Angela Bassett, actress. I said, yeah. And he says, does she still act? Now, if, if you ask that to a, a black person, they'd be like, Angela Bassett is a huge. But to, but I can understand that let me know that that's not, when when that person goes out to the movie, he's not going to see, to go and see an Angela Bassett film. Right. He's not, so in his mind, she has no reason for her to ever come up and and so you know we do have and, and I know we all can't you know just do the same things but we're different so difference is good sometimes and, and oh, if we could stop being afraid of it wait hang on one second I'm not gonna stop I'll edit it but I think I left my fridge open it's gonna be here the whole time man <laughs> yeah Sean is out the room now I'm in the room now he'll never know this but he he will know what I'm saying now. But I think Tom, John is a pretty cool cat, you know. He's an athlete who is a recent artist now. This is funny. I'm glad he's doing this show. What? Did you leave me a special message? He's back now. So... <clears throat> Along those same lines, it's something I say all the time, which this is not, it, it plays to race, but it plays to everything. I think the internet's a lot responsible for this, but I feel like we lack empathy as a people. The idea of sort of putting yourself in someone else's shoes is really hard for 
people or they don't it's not hard they just don't try but i think i think if you combine that being in other people's shoes and i hate to keep saying this but then when you, once you put race into it because i do think that's our original sin and we haven't even just gone back to deal with that and to acknowledge that and to say okay it happened this is you know this is what happened and let's accept that and let's move on but some people are in denial that that slavery even happened so when you're talking about stepping in someone's shoes and then everything has to be racial, it's hard to get. Be- like even now, it's like you go from having a black president to having a white president and, and those personalities being very different from each other. Yeah. Then they make everything way. about it still boils down to race because some, some people still live it in the past. So, so if you're white and you feel a certain way, it's like, well. I know this black guy wasn't a great president. And if you're black, you know what I mean? It's, it's, so you have opposing things because you're making everything be about race because we haven't really dealt with it. And we don't want to deal with it. We just want to point the finger. Of course. And, and I'll take it a step further. So slavery clearly um, is our national disgrace. I mean, I, don't, I mean mm-hmm. it's, the, you know, it's the end all be all of horrible yeah. things in our history. Um. But I'll take it a step further, and this is the argument I make all the time when I run into people that you hear the same old trope. Well, you may not. This is the trope I hear from white people is, you know, they're successful people. Why don't they just pull themselves up and do whatever? Or why don't they just leave the ghetto? Or why don't they just go get a regular job? Or why don't they? But it's just this whole, like, they're pieces of shit. They could get out of it if they wanted to. Um, black people hate white people more than white people hate black people. All this nonsense. <laughs> and... Like, Which is not true. <laughs> no, and but the thing the is, black is, people are some of the most forgiving people on the planet. Well, obviously, but the point is, is what I try to say them to them is, is like, think about this. So the town that I was born in, which I came to Atlanta when I was ten years old, in 1985, 1985, that was 32 years ago, mm-hmm. right? Not very long. There was a a restaurant where. Black people were not allowed to eat up front. They could go back around to the back and get food from the kitchen, like the window. Mm-hmm. And they had little tables in the back. And I should say aloud, it was so culturally ingrained that no one would, you know, it wasn't like it was, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but so my, you know, I tell people, I'm like, can you just imagine now if you're a young person, you know, say you're a teenager in some urban area somewhere. It's entirely possible that you have a grandparent that watched the federal government turn hoses onto black people mm-hmm. on TV to sick dogs onto black people, to beat them in the streets when they were trying to march on Washington, which is protected by the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like when I was doing Hairspray Live and um, Ariana Grande is 23. The, my ensemble is guys were some guys were born in 1998 and we're doing a musical we're about the integration of dance and it hit me one day and I just got to give a lesson I was like do you know that the characters the black ensemble the characters they're playing their parents during this time could not vote absolutely <laughs> you know? so they're oh and they're like so they're you know these are like 19 year old kids now and they're like Wow, really, Mr. Leon? I said, yeah, we got to read our history because our country doesn't do a good job of presenting the history. 
Absolutely. And if we present it to history, then we can say, yeah, yeah, it happened. So what? Slavery happened. It happened. So we have to acknowledge that black and white to acknowledge that and then move on from it. But we can't move on from it if someone is in a denial about it and every and every turn of the corner says, oh, we should praise the Confederate flag and it's a symbol oh, of this and the symbol exactly of that. That's exactly what I was going like, to say. No. These same people that tell these, it's like you need to move on are the same people that carry on the symbolism right. of a lost war from 1860, 1860 to 1865 or whatever it was. Right. But again, I'm like, I try to say to those people, it's like, imagine if the roles were reversed and your grandfather had said, I got spit on, I got, you know, I got thrown stuff at, I got called the N-word mm -hmm. in public, you know, just walking down the street. How hard would that be for you to let go? And not only that. And they've all let it go, but you haven't. Like, that's the thing is the people that should be the most pissed are actually saying, no, 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 we're prepared to move on. But you, the one that's the one that should be, is the one that's that always says it's. And know. I, you're right. And I challenge anyone who says, "Oh, they should pull themselves up." Even some black folks say that about black. But we should pull yourself up from. Let me tell you something. These black folks that are in America now are the strongest of the strong. And you, you go from their journey from the Middle Passage to going through slavery when someone is taking away your language, taking away your ability to learn, to educate yourself, to communicate. So you got you putting your putting the whole culture hundreds and hundreds of years behind. Whereas everybody, you know, the other culture is like encouraged to go to school, to learn, to to read, and it's like you had a whole, you know, generation where you were denied the ability to pull yourself up, to read to educate yourself, taking everything. Now you're building that back up. Now you got to build that back up and move on. But so if you go to a typical neighborhood in Washington, D.C. or somewhere in St. Louis, Missouri, and you go to a black community and you say, why aren't these people? Well, just back up. Who were their parents? Who were their grandparents? And what, you know, their, their, their grandparents couldn't vote, you know, their great grandparents couldn't, wouldn't allow it to read. Couldn't go to so school. So, like, how long does it take, you know? And now you're saying, oh, we're going to take all the federal assistance to help that, you know? Because I'm Kenny Leon. I'm a product of, uh, of, um, of those programs that, you know, the Upward Bound program was a program that the government supported f for students who had college potential, but whose parents, like my parents together, made. $10,000 a year, the whole year. And I ended up with support of that Upward Bound program. I was, I was able to go to college. And because I went to college, and nobody, I'm not saying you didn't give me anything. Just look at it as a government loaned me that. I went to college, and now I'm making a contribution. I'm making a contribution on the Broadway stage. I'm making a contribution on the network television. I'm making a contribution in my neighborhood. But I needed that up because if I didn't have that support, I would have never been able to go to college. Well, and how about all those kids that participate in the August Wilson monologue competition? Well, absolutely. So my job is to, you know, to show them the way and help them. Yeah, we're going to work hard and do everything we can to pull ourselves up. But sometimes you have that, that inherent, you know, that, that subtle racism that's just there. You know, we should want all of us to be the best that we could be. You know, I think there are two things that all Americans should have. That's education and health care. 
I and I don't think there's and I don't think I don't think money is an excuse for not having either one. Yeah, you're right. And my little aside on health care is, and I said this because my father, who passed away a couple of years ago, um, had really bad problems. And it, you know, it, it was fiscally, my parents signed me. So I'm a first generation college graduate. I'm the first mm-hmm. person to ever go to college on either side of my family. Wow. And um, well, they we, did, have, we have that in common. So yeah. So, and they, they did, and my parents did well for people that didn't have a college, but we were middle class, lower middle class, I guess. Um, but you know, my dad's illnesses really financially were rough, right? On them, and mm-hmm. I, my problem is just this idea of the the prof the. I don't have a problem with profit because I'm an entrepreneur and I like money Absolutely. and I like to do whatever. However, my problem is is that what I think is I call it leveraging life. When you're leveraging someone's life to make money, that's where I have a problem. Now, if you want to get your ass implanted or if you want to get you know that's one thing but I I just have you know I just don't think it should be like how big your bank account oh really well you're gonna die that to how big your bank account is should not dictate whether or not other people should be able to decide whether or not they're gonna save you or you're gonna have access to things that that only because that's honestly some I mean that's some Machiavellian shit right like that's some that's some old world like <laughs> it's so contradictory. We try to pretend we care about life. Like we would we'll get a bunch of money or a bunch of food if something devastating happens to some other group of people in the other part of the world and we'll drop food to them like we care and then we'll like have people here in the ghetto and we won't even we'll deny them free food <laughs> at, at the, in the school lunch program. Uh, so it's so it's un- hypocritical. It's unbelievable. And I'll tell you another story that was profoundly impactful on me. So Holly and I a few times have volunteered for Hosea Feed the Hungry. Mm-hmm. And Elizabeth Omalami is just such an amazing human being. Mm-hmm. And her husband is an actor who has participated in stuff of yours, right? Mm-hmm. A famous. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I can't remember how we got hooked up, but we went down there one Thanksgiving, I think, and basically just served, you know, just served food. Um, Again, like expose yourself, like just expose yourself. So I, so a lot of like my misconceptions about race, I had misconceptions about homeless people. Oh, absolutely. And so we went down there and so there were different stations and it was really interesting because I'd never been there and I was actually a little scared, right? To go, not physically scared, but just, I I thought it would be hard to look at and you know, I just emotionally, I didn't know how I would take Mm -hmm. it and all that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we get down there and, you know, they have the food lines and they have all these chairs and they have people performing music and they have pastors there. And, you know, so it's not just like come grab food and scurry off. They're actually trying to provide, mm-hmm. you know, some help and or any just companionship. I mean, these people are whole, alone a lot, you know, and all that. So there were different jobs. There were people boxing food. There were people um, on a line. They needed someone to walk around. Because if, can you imagine this too? Like this talks too about how it just, my heart breaks just talking about, I may cry just talking about it. But like there are people that'll come in there to get outside from the cold because it was cold this particular year around Thanksgiving or whatever, but they Mm -hmm. have too much pride to walk up to the line and grab, like they're homeless and hungry and they, Mm -hmm. they, they don't feel like they should go up and get a handout Mm -hmm. to take a handout. So very smart on their part. They would say someone just go around and just offer it to them because then they don't feel like, you know, it's like, hey, you're sitting over here by yourself. Just here, take this and you just put it down. Walk off. You don't have to say anything. 
And so, but that forced me to interact with people that were there. And one thing that's sort of amazing, the two things that struck me the most about it in the people that I talked to that day, and we were there for a good while, five or six hours, is um, these are not people that are happy with where they're at. You hear that narrative a lot from like, oh, they're just, you know, these people that, you know, they don't work and they're just so like pigs and shit. They're getting their check from so-and-so. And and it's like, no, man, there's nothing happy about having a kid, not knowing where you're going to be able to put your kid to sleep that night. Like that's a, that's a bullshit argument, right? Mm. Cause those, cause a lot of these people really wanted to, you know, and it's like, but it's like getting to a place that's so dreadful and so bad. It's like, you can't, you can't figure out how to even start to drag yourself out of it. I talked to a guy. And he'd been homeless for about two years. And, you know, he said, and I even, and again, from talking, I got enough. I was like, well, couldn't you just go and, you just, why don't you just go flip burgers? You know? And this is what the guy said to me. He goes, I mean, I will never forget this. I'm for sure going to cry. He said, what's the second line of every job application? So the first line is your name. What's the second line? Probably your address. Address. Don't have one. Mm-hmm. Nothing to write on there. Do you think a guy that's managing a burger franchise with a cash register with cash and that equipment and all that stuff, if I go in there and fill out a job application and leave that line blank, that anybody's going to hire me to do anything? No, they won't. Second thing is, is he's like, I don't have a place to shower. These are the only clothes that I have that I'm wearing. They're tattered. I smell bad. I haven't had a ha- when I, c- I cut my hair myself, you know, with a pocket knife. And I mean, I'm just thinking, and, and I was one of those people. It's just like, God, there's got to be. But like, where does that guy start? Like that, if you were really think about, if you were in that situation, like I can't even imagine the despair. Like, so first of all, getting past the mental part of it, like the depression and stuff that pe- normal people deal with. Like people go wealthy people all the time go to their psychiatrist, you know, or whatever, like to deal with their depression. Like imagine if that, but you don't even have a place to go home to. Mm -hmm. So that was just heartbreaking because it's like, yeah, how does this guy, who, who gives this guy a job? Right. I don't know who, I don't know. And then the second thing is, is that there were so many people I talked to where there were clearly mental health issues going on. We don't even provide services for people's physical health. Mental health, that's like the invisible, you know, in a lot of circles too. Like if you go, I've been going to see a counselor since my dad died because I was as low as I've ever been. I was depressed. It was affecting my marriage. You know, I just was sad and nothing felt, I couldn't see any color in the world. You know, Mm -hmm. it just, everything was just black and gray. And, but I have the means I can go pay somebody a hundred bucks an hour if I want to go talk to them once a week. I I don't, that's nothing to me, but these people don't have that. And I mean, we're, and we're not talking about some depressed. I mean, talking about people that probably were bipolar that have schizophrenia. I mean, you know, you could just talk to them and know that something is not right. Mm -hmm. So not only do they not have the physical means to go out and earn any money, but they really need care and there's nowhere to get it. And it's just hard. I mean, it breaks my heart just talking about it. Like, because to the man, all of them wanted to do something. That guy even asked me, he's like, is there anything I can do? Can I come and is there anything I can work on? I'm pretty handy with, you know, this, can I cut your grass? Can I, 
You know what I mean? Is there anything just basically begging to work? And that's, I think, what, again, if you go and I, I would tell everyone to go do that at some point. I'm telling you, if you've never done it before, go volunteer at a homeless organization just so you can see it. Because I guarantee you it'll change your perspective. Well, you know, I've I've done uh, I've done the uh, the the Jose Feeder Hungry, you know, a couple of times with them. But when I work with the people of the Brick, when I actually recruited homeless people and taught them acting skills and created a play about their lives, it really taught me, like you're saying, it taught me more. I learned way more than they got from me. So when I say they're not a monolithic group, it's like from day one you realize like, okay, we're going to have rehearsal for this play. And you go in there thinking that's going to be a great thing, but it's like how are we going to have rehearsal for a play? Like we're dealing with a culture that is like they have to be somewhere at a certain time, like, you know, twice a week. When That's not going to happen, you know. Uh, and then when you meet them, you realize that if you just try not taking a bath for – or not taking a shower for a week. Ugh. You do that for a week, just smelling your own body will affect your mental stability. Mm-hmm. So it's like everybody has that. And then it's like, like you said, you gotta have an address or, and a lot of them sold, uh, like they gave blood and sold blood, but you can't do that but so many times, you know? And then it's like, oh, you need clothes. Well, you can't keep good clothes on the street. So you got to like, okay, where am, should I, should I bury these these clothes on the ground right here and come back and get them or should I, you know, so that's a problem. And I had, in my group, I had a, a, and I won't call their name because all these people are great human beings. And it was funny because some of them were ex-teachers, some of them were, and some, some, some cats wanted to be on the street. So you got the person that wants to be there. Then you got the person that happened to be mentally ill and gets there. Then you have another person who missed a paycheck and didn't get a paycheck and got in the cycle. So they're all all these problems but there's one group there's one guy what well, actually was a woman and I got to know them in the group and I'm like wow okay and 100% I thought this was a woman and then I found out as we got further into the weeks and weeks spending time with them that this was not a woman it was a man and he had created this persona of this woman and I'm telling you she, you could not tell it was a guy, but he created that being so that, so that's how he survived on the street. You know, being a woman was easier for him because is it, it because people were more sympathetic towards? Yeah, women? he made himself like very, wow, very like, like a kind of introverted, shy, sad woman, and it was a guy. You know what I mean? But then again, you know, homeless women are treated so poorly on the street. So you know, but so what I what I when I went into what I've taken away from it is like wow, you can't just give everybody an aspirin and say hey, I've treated everybody. <laughs> it's like everybody. It's a they're just they're just like the broader community. It's like it's everybody, and everybody has a different issue and a different thing, and we just don't as a society we don't care enough about those uh, individuals. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, my last sort of recommendation. So one of my customers is actually the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and my client for work. And uh, mm. if you haven't gone, you should go. Oh, yeah, I like that. I mean, and I don't mean you. I'm talking about the listeners. If you're listening and you yeah, haven't gone, I recommend great. that you go. Um, 
it, it's again, you know, there's a whole section dedicated to Dr. King, which I think everybody should spend as much time with Dr. King stuff as possible. Um, learn about guys like John Lewis and the things that they went through with the freedom rides and all that sort of stuff. It's such an integral and amazing part of our history. And to think about what those guys volunteered, sacrificed and volunteered to sacrifice in order to try to make these strides. It's really amazing because I'm not convinced that I would have the courage to do the things that they did. I mean, that's the thing because they basically for the greater good, I mean, effectively put their lives on the line or did, you know, they basically said, if I have to die for this, that's okay because we're trying to achieve this end. And, and 95% of the people I know, I'm not sure that they have the stones to, to say that. Right. Um, but there's just so many, and that's even before you go upstairs at NCCHR where they have the exhibit for the rest of the world where all mm -hmm. this heinous shit's going on. Um, I just, think museums get a bad name just because the word museum seems like, Oh, it's going to be boring. It's going to be static. But that museum is really interactive, which is, I, I like that. So it gives you the real experience of what these people were really going through. Like if they were in, in, a, in, a, in a restaurant where they shouldn't be and somebody kicks their stool and what's that feel like and the noise. And, and then that exhibit they had where, because people think of the, the, watch on Marshall, the March on Washington, they think that was just where he did the I Have a Dream speech. But then you realize that, no, there were hundreds of thousands of other people there, you know, and you can plug in and hear what other people said that day too, So, which was pretty amazing, like artists, you know, that I respect who, are, you know, you get to see, oh, wow, Josephine Baker was there, oh, wow. And, you know what I mean, different so yeah, and the exhibit, the thing you're talking about, which I think is probably one of the most powerful ones there, is the is the lunch counter. And what it is is when you walk in, it's set up just like a lunch counter, and there's a mm -hmm. glass in front of you where there's a scene that where you're looking like you're sitting at a counter, and there's a real counter and one of those red mounted stools. You sit down at the stool and you put headphones on, and there's a place you can put your hands on the counter. When you put your hands down, it activates the exhibit, and it starts. and And the premise of that is is you are a black person that has just walked into a whites only diner and sat down at the counter, mm -hmm. and in your ears in stereo. So again, there's people all around you. You get the sort of low hum of people being like, "What is?" As people then, as people start to get more bold, which is also such a great in the mob mentality, right? Because all these people in there, no one says anything at first, but then as other as people start to do stuff, people gain courage because they do whatever. And then they start yelling and they start doing and they kick your stool and there's a thing in the stool that makes it move, you right. know, like someone's doing it. And, and the other thing too, that I tell people all the time is it's not even completely accurate because it's for kit. Like I guess for younger people, there's no swearing, there's no use of the N word. And you know that what they said was a thousand times more vile than what's in that recording. Mm -hmm. But it makes you so physically uncomfortable. Like I would chat. And part of the thing is when it starts, it starts a timer. And when you take your hands off, it stops. And the idea is how long can you sit there before you just don't want to sit there anymore? Right. I made it 28 seconds before wow. I was so disgusted that I just I had to get up and take the headphones off. Mm. And there are people that would go do that for hours to prove a point. But yeah, there's a lot of your 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 great great people who grew up in Alabama. Absolutely. Was in there, you know. Um that's the thing what people don't realize. The people think, I think, I think a lot of white folks, older white folks probably, think that we don't want to forget that and we want to accuse them and make them feel bad because they because their ancestors were you know was b 
believing that slavery was cool. But that's not what people feel. That's not what I feel in my heart. You know, I feel in my heart is like, okay, that did happen. And there were reasons, you know, that it happened in the, in the mind of those people. But that's not what I want. What I want to say, that was the past. Yeah, we're better than that now. The thing is now, like, where are we now? And I just want someone to say, you know what? That happened. And because of that, the country is better for it because they had free labor for a few hundred years. They had free labor and that free labor helped America become what it is now. So give credit to that free labor for making the country what it is now. Don't strip don't strip us down and take it away. Well, you weren't born in the DuPont, the Rockefeller family, so you need to pull yourself up from the bootstrap. No, no, no. We understand. But we, you know, the telegram poles in the ground because of us. You know what I mean? The trains are running because of us. The cars are running because and, and not just us, but you know what I mean? That's all that's all we want. It's like, hey, we did that and it made us what we are today. Not like let's go to some uh let's let's go return America to when it was great again, which was a time when 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 blacks were oppressed or enslaved. Well, and and if they were allowed to participate in all the wealth that was generated from all that, you wouldn't have there wouldn't be as many people that needed to escape from poverty because that wealth would still exist. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a it's an old Chris Rock joke that I think is hilarious because I think he's a genius. Mm -hmm. He's like, that's money you can't get rid of. Right. People are so rich, like you couldn't get rid of it if you tried. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, you know, and you're right. The Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, the Carnegie's, the all these industrial titans from back then were all a lot of that money was on the backs of, you know, plantations and having to ship cotton from here to there and having to, you know, and having to get lumber from here to there and having to, you know, but you're right. There were a bunch of people that people own that were out there chopping that shit down so they could yeah. get it from here to there. And if they would have just been able to participate in the smallest way, you would have had wealth that could have carried on through. You know, and isn't that, and that's the thing too. I told people, it's like, isn't that, I always try to frame things in context where I feel like people can empathize, not sympathize, right? Sympathize is, I can't relate, but I'm trying to understand. Empathize is I get it because I, I've experienced it before. Mm -hmm. And the thing I think is like, as a parent, you know, people that have kids, like, man, people that are, other people that have kids, regardless of, again, race and all that mm -hmm. other stuff. What do they want at the end of the day? You want to be able to provide the best thing you can That's for right. your children. And believe me, I understand lazy. There are people that are lazy and all, all cultures and races. So like, but <laughs> that's not what I'm talking about. They're, you know. Well, that's why like, nobody wants to talk. Whatever it is, the county in Kentucky, I can't remember what it is, where like it's like 98% white and it's the largest per capita population of people on federal assistance in the country. Oh, right. <laughs> it is. It's an old, it's a wow. bunch of people that are on, you know, food stamps and whatever, because it's a rural, like the, you know, it used to have some kind of economy that disappeared manufacturing or whatever, mm -hmm. but it's the same. It's like, it's no different. It's, these are, you know, these are people that are, you know, on the government teat, as they like to say, mm -hmm. they're not black. It's all poor mm -hmm. white folks. But it's also too like people understanding that the real enemy is poverty. I have a I'm doing this play. Um, I'm preparing for Broadway called Children of a Lesser God, and the last line in the play is, and it's a a woman and a man. They've been in a a, a, a romantic relationship and they're breaking apart. But he says, "Do we have a chance in the future to be together?" And she says, "Yes, there is a chance." But 
she says it it hinges on the fact that I'll help you and you'll help me. And it's a beautiful line because it's like that's if if everybody in our country says, you know what? And especially people who are different from each other, I'll help you if you help me. So for every Democrat that doesn't understand a Republican, if they said <laughs> that, if every black who didn't understand a white, they said that, every rural and urban, they, I'll help you if you help me. I mean, genuinely meet that, because, and one by one, you, I'll help you if you help me. And, and we don't have to find judgment or fault or blame. It's like, help me, help me understand you. Just help me, help me, help me understand that. And so I choose to look at the world in a beautiful way, and, and I think that, you know, we all don't know how long we're going to live. So the key is like, did we make it different? You know, did we, did we add to it? So, yeah. So along those lines, I do want to talk, this is awesome stuff. Um, I want to specifically talk about the August Wilson monologue competition and the stuff you guys have done with the theater. Mm -hmm. So August Wilson was a playwright. Yep. Um, and, was that how, did that come along later? Were the August Wilson works part of your inspiration for the theater? Like how how did you land on August Wilson and associate it with the theater? And well, first of all, August Wilson I think was one of the greatest writers in American history. And you know, I just had the blessing and the fortune of having met him and knew him. You know, not really closely, but I had a relationship with him professionally for like over twenty years when I would produce um, uh, his plays at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. So he wrote 10 great plays, and I had a chance to work on all 10. And uh, and he's had a special effect on a lot of artists in our country, especially African-American artists, you know, from uh, Charles Dutton to Denzel Washington to Samuel L. Jackson, Lawrence Fishburne, Angela Bassett, Viola Davis, Stephen McKinley Henderson, uh, Anthony Mackey. Um, he's had a lot of folks that at the time when he came along, if he didn't give us professional acting, directing jobs, we wouldn't have them, you know. And then he passed away in 2005. And selfishly, me and his assistant, Todd Kreitler, in an effort to keep him alive and, or had the idea of August Wilson alive, because we were in denial that he was gonna die, and that was a painful thing. So we just said, wow. Let's start, you know, he died in 2005, and we were like, how do we keep him alive? We keep him alive by putting his 10 plays into the hands of ninth through 12th graders. But we didn't have any money, but we said, oh, I got a company, True Colors, in Atlanta, and we went to one school, I think it was Tri-Cities High School, one school, and, you know, and said, hey, kids, read this and recite the monologues from these plays. And then we built on it every year till we now we're reaching over, you know, you know, over 600 students in um, in Atlanta alone, you know, and I don't know, so many schools. And now we're in 12 different cities. And we take the finalists from each city and we fly them to New York. Many of them have never been out of their 
their communities, whether that be Pittsburgh, Seattle, Boston, Los Angeles, New York. Uh, so we're in these 12 cities, and we fly them out of their, out of their cities on a plane. Men have never been on a plane. Then they go to New York City. They've never been in New York City, never seen anything like New York. And then we take them to uh, a couple of shows. Last year we took them to see Hamilton, the musical, and we saw the, the color purple. And then we have the cast come out. You know, Lin-Manuel spent time and came out and talked with them. Chris Jackson, the entire cast, came out and spent time with them. So we try to give them that experience every year. And then we have uh, one year Dan, Dan Ratcliffe, came and talked to them the year before last. Uh, Denzel Washington spent time with them. So I get a star to spend time with them. We take them into two couple of shows. I do a workshop on career building because we know that not everybody is going to be an actor, but the plays themselves empower all Americans to be the best American that you could be. And that's what these plays are about. So it, it teaches you to pull yourself up and work hard and, you know, and realizing that everything in America is owed you. You have the privileges and the rights to everything that is American. So we try to instill that in their head and I do that workshop and then on Monday night they compete uh, using a monologue from any of the 10 plays where they work on articulation and diction and honesty and um, and they try to take the lesson from the play and apply it to their real lives. So we've been doing that now for it's our 10th year and it's kind of it's kind of crazy. But, you know, to see these kids now, like, you know, kids from the first year, see them on the streets now. We got like three or four kids that, you know, we got a kid who won the first monologue competition. She went to Juilliard. She got into Juilliard. Wow. And now she's directed, she's acted in like two or three Broadway plays. So to see these kids go off and become, you know, to uh, be in, uh, you know, med school or to to be in graduate school and or to be on a Broadway stage is really fulfilling uh, and, and, and selfish because it was just a way of trying to keep August alive. So the August Wilson monologue competition is August Wilson alive again. It has nothing to do. And when we started it, the thing I said, I said, we want to start this, but it can never be about me or any other individual. It always has to be about the young people and their futures and has to be about August Wilson. So that's what we do and been doing that for a while. Yeah, and it's amazing. I mean, so my my wife is the president of the board of True Colors. Absolutely. Right now. She's and, a good president. And uh, she loves it. And the there's a big golf and gala every year, which is coming up. So yep. if anybody wants to come and play golf, it's May celebrity. 19th. Better hurry up. May 19th. May 19th. So go, it's wow. the golf and the party dinner is on May 20th. And already we have 140 golfers. Oh, wow. We only got five weeks to get, and we're probably going to close it off at 40 more because we're going to be at Golf Club of Georgia using two courses, both their courses. But, and then, uh, you know, we got my buddy Samuel L. Jackson and Tori Kittles uh, from the, his television show, uh, Colony. Colony. It's amazing. So, you know, we got a few, you know, we got celebrities, local celebrities, and international and national celebrities. Yeah, and it's it's so much fun, and and you know that's one of the things too. If you like to golf, come. If you like the theater, come. If you like to see celebrities, the other thing that's fun about the golf tournament is people don't realize like you're just hanging out. Like you know you're at the you're getting a, ha a ham and cheese biscuit, and Sam Jackson, mm -hmm. <laughs> you look on your left, and he's just over there getting a biscuit. And all this money we raise money to support these young people in the August Wilson Monologue Competition. So it's all about the future of our ninth through twelfth graders, and we created that right here. In Atlanta, and now we're across the country. And that's, I think it's it's truecolorstheater.org. Dot org. That's right, truecolorstheater.org, so you can go there. 
but um, you also get usually get some pretty some pretty good Adidas swag as oh, a yeah. part of the deal. Yeah, because um, I only wear tennis shoes, so Adidas is one of my sponsors, and they're really great. So I love I love Adidas; they're great. Um, and uh, it really is just a fun. I mean, it's a fun day. It's it's a you know you can bring a team, you can come as an individual, Absolutely. you can if you have a company and you're interested in sponsorship, you can. I'm sure there's probably still opportunities to do that. Let's do that. And then we got, you know, our next play at the theater is uh, when Riverside meets Crazy. So that's coming up in June. So go to the website, come to that. And then I'm directing this Tupac, Tupac musical. Tupac, Holler If You Hear Me. Holler If You Hear Me. So we just finished casting that yesterday. So that's going to start uh, like in September. But um, So yeah. one of the things, too, that I, again, like, this is what I love about you because, like you'd say, and we talked about a lot of this sort of deep introspective stuff, but one of the things that's great is you walk, like you talk the talk, but you walk the walk. And what's cool is, so obviously I can tell that in your DNA is you love to give people opportunity. You love to create opportunity for people to, to participate and to do things. So there's obviously the August Wilson thing, which creates a ton of opportunity for these kids that may have not had another opportunity. Oh, and what I was going to say is, is that the gala, then everybody's at the gala the next night, which is this huge dinner and there's a dinner band party and, dancing, you know, or, and, and you, and the kid and some, and the kids usually are there. Yeah. That but this year we're going to do something different. We're going to have one kid perform, but I'm going to have the celebrities, the actor, movie, film star, stage celebrities. They're going to, uh, they're going to read from two or three different August oh, Wilson that's plays. that's awesome. So we'll do that on idea. Saturday night as well. So, and these are like these kids too, like when you meet them, they're just, they're impressive. You know yeah. how sometimes you meet a young person and you're like, holy cow, like this kid's really impressive. Right. They're those kind of kids, which is always for me really inspiring. That's why like, I started coaching baseball a couple of years ago and I, I don't have children, so it was a little weird for me. Mm-hmm. But it was really fun. Like all of a sudden you feel some ownership and when you see them succeed, it creates a lot of pride. Yeah, yeah. But that's what we're supposed to do while we're here. You know, that's all we can do. How we give back to people, how we serve our fellow human. Yeah. So you mentioned obviously the thing where you created the vehicle so the homeless people could participate. Hmm. When you were doing the whiz, so all right for those of you, I don't know how you could not know because it was huge. But for those of you that don't know, Kenny redid the whiz for the live, which you've seen. I think the first one they did was the Sound of Music, Sound and that was music. Carrie Underwood. Mm-hmm. Then the second one they did was Peter Pan. Peter Pan. Then the whiz. Then third one was the whiz, and then Hairspray, and then Hairspray. So, and now they're doing Bye Bye Birdie with J Lo this year, but I'm not directing that. So this was live to TV. On NBC, right. which is a monster network. Like, so you're talking about these people that are highly invested. And when you were cat, so Dorothy, right? <laughs> the Dorothy you got did not have any. She hadn't done anything. No, she hadn't done anything professionally. She was taking it in school, and so she was a freshman. So she was 19 years old. But she's doing. You know, I cast her in the lead. You know, she's surrounded by Queen Latifah and David Allen Greer and and Elijah Neo. Kelly and Neo and Uza Aduba and, you know, all these folks. And, um, you know, uh, Mary J. Blige, you know, so it's just a lot of pressure, but it also gave her opportunity. And I think sometimes we just need opportunity. And so with Hairspray, we did the same thing. So Maddie, Maddie Balio, you know, she was in college, you know, she was in college. And, like they and she just came there and people don't understand not everyone can do live when you when i say it's live that mean it's live and there's no room for error 
and there's no room, we can't cover the nervousness, or we can't cover if you hit a note off, or we can't cover if you can't get from Studio A to Studio B in the 30 seconds between the numbers, you know? So there are some mistakes that happen, but hopefully there are mistakes that the audiences, the audiences don't pick up. And it's a, it's a tremendous high. I've done live theater, I've done movies of the week, I've done episodic, I've done Broadway shows, but the live television musical, there is nothing more challenging and more rewarding when you pull it off. You know, I, I still think to this day, no one knows how difficult Hairspray Live was to do. <laughs> You know, we had, we were on like fourteen different locations. We had to like we had to get camera crew from the first scene. They had to go to the third scene. And then we had another camera crew to go to the second second scene. So they had to leapfrog each other until we finished it. A lot telecast. Well, I remember know. I called you one night when y'all were rehearsing, and you were I can't remember exactly what, but you were dealing with a pretty complicated setup, right, for something. Mm-hmm. And I can't. How many cameras was Hairspray? Oh, Hairspray. I don't know. We I guess we had like. You know, we had, well, on each individual setup, you had about like 13. <laughs> but then throughout, you had about 60. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's just so crazy, so right? It and was it's hard. All... So you had handhelds. You had little mini crane shots. You had, and then we started the whole movie outside with a huge crane shot up high and bring it down low. It was hard. And Alex Ruzinski, who was the camera director, man, he was he's just brilliant, you know. And it was the most collaborative thing I've worked on as well. Yeah, so... So again, like those people, and again, like you're taking someone that with no experience and being like, we're going to put you on network TV in one of the most pressure cooked kind of environments you can go in. And I have confidence you're going to do it. And like they crushed. I mean, in the Wiz, she just crushed. I mean, I thought she was. But you know, the big part about that, the secret is, and I said this to uh, Bob Greenblatt, the head of NBC. And I was like, I applauded him for, for trusting me because it's not like you're prepared to do this. I mean, I believed I could do it, but I didn't have all of the answers. You know, I've done live theater, I've done some TV, but it's like, okay, I don't exactly know how that first scene is going to transition to that <laughs> second scene. But when uh, when someone hires you and trusts you to figure it out and it's a revolution of an idea, I mean, there's nothing that, that's just great, just great. Yeah, so, so cool. So then also you were telling me a story yesterday or a couple of days ago when we talked that ch- so Children of a Lesser God, a lot of people maybe know the movie with John Hurt and Mary Matlin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Correct. Um, so you were working with a sign language expert, right, in the research phase. Right. I, I got attached to the project because uh, I knew I was going to do it on Broadway and I figured I was going to cast a deaf woman to play the lead. So I better get into some sign language classes. And so I took some classes from uh, this woman who was deaf, or had been deaf since birth. Her, she has two kids, they're deaf, and her husband is deaf. Wow. And, but I took classes every, once a week for like a year, and it was great. And then at the end of that year, I realized like, wow, well, why couldn't she play the role? I mean, she could play the role in the Broadway show. I know she's not an actress, but she could do it. And we did a workshop with her and Joshua Jackson from the show The Affair on Showtime, he plays the the, um, the lead male role. And they had such chemistry, and she was so great that the producers tripped over themselves. They said, okay, we want to we wanna fast-track this, and the only stipulation is she has to be in it, and Joshua Jackson has to be in it. That's so amazing. Oh, it's so amazing. So to see the joy in her eyes now, like, 
she is actually going to do a Broadway show. You know, 37 years old, doing her first Broadway show. But she's so talented. And uh, I drank beer with Josh Jackson once. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. You should come up to it. We're going to do a, 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 a run of it before Broadway at the Berkshire Theater Festival in all of June. So I start rehearsal next month. Yeah, that's so amazing. So, but again, I applaud you because, I mean, you do. I mean, you, I, you're you an empowering guy. Like, that's one of the first things that I thought when I met you, however long ago when we met, is mm-hmm. that you're, you have that sort of, that empowering energy right when people get around you it's just very it's positive it's super positive mm. and like i whenever we talk about stuff i always come away with it feeling it's like i need to do more <laughs> like really? i need to, like i'm inspired to do to do more no, you to do, do enough something. already but thank you so i mean that's pretty awesome so there's another story i want to talk about just because this is interesting but you told me this a long time ago too so you did raisin in the sun um for television with yes, I did it on Broadway with P. Diddy, right, and um, Felicia Rashad and Audra McDonald and Sanaa Lathan, and then we did that production for uh, for the TV movie. So like a so-so cast, yeah, <laughs> Audra McDonald, Felicia Rashad, like some serious yeah. and Bill Nunn, yeah. So so the f- crazy thing was, and because I hear this all the time, and it's again interesting because culturally, I think, but specifically, we were talking about Sean Combs about about Puffy, yeah, and. You had told me that basically that had he come to you like when he had heard about it, about wanting to do it? No, his acting coach, um, um, I forget her name now, uh, uh, Susan, his acting coach, Susan, who was actually um, Tom Cruise's and Nicole Kidman's acting coach. Oh. And... um, she said, "Well, I heard you looking. You're trying to do Raising the Sun. You can't get it up because you need a star. And what about uh, Puffy?" And I'm like, "He doesn't act, does he?" <laughs> and she was like, "No, but I've been having him in acting class, and you know, I think you should look at him." So that's how I met him. He came up an audition, and I told him right away. I was like, "I don't think you have the technique to pull this off, but I think together we can. So if you like, if you shut down the." the businesses and if you get rid of your 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 the, the the group of guys that you have to be with all the time and but I think you could do it because you have an honesty and a authenticity that I think is rare and he and the, the producers at that time they were like why why did you say that to him I said because that's the truth and what he respect more than anything is the truth so he was like he told me the truth he told me I have some things but I don't have everything and that together we could do it. And this cat man, I don't know anyone that can outwork him. He works and prepares, man, like crazy. So we would rehearse eight hours a day. Then he would go to his acting coach, uh, Susan Batson, and he would work her, with her for two hours. And then he would come and pick me up after I had taken a nap. He would come and pick me up, and then we would go out to a club or a restaurant and just talk about the craft of theater. And then he would go home to his Park Avenue home, and he had a replica of the set built for in his apartment. So so he could go home and sleep like a poor man. Now, he did have the money to do that, but that's what he was willing to do. So he went home, and he slept like on the couch or whatever. So during that whole time of rehearsal, he is preparing and doing everything possible for him to be the best that he could be. And then, so I use that with the other actors, you know, like that. We all need to do the very best we could do. And I I took that lesson away from Diddy like 
up until I met him, and I only met him in 2004. And then I realized, like, I thought I was doing my the best, and I was working the hardest, and I was giving 100%. After I met him, I was like, no, I have another gear. I can give another 50%. And that was so, since the last two years, I've been doing 150%. Because I think sometimes we don't use all of our brain, all of our mind, and we have to push ourselves more. Yeah, and I mean, he's a guy that, for all, he's a guy that for all intents and purposes, I mean, doesn't, I mean, he didn't need the job. No. Right? Like, no, he didn't and, need to do that. And also, like, the other in thing. In fact, is, he lost money. He lost like $7 million well, by doing it. Well, what I was going to say is, is that most people, like, when Kenny says he has to shut down all the stuff, that doesn't mean, like, don't rap for a while. Like, that guy's a mogul, right? right. He owns businesses. He, uh, he has he money. Music. I mean, the restaurants, the store, all of that. He just shut it down. And, and I mean, and that's one of the things, and too. And then we did the, the movie after that so we spent some more time together and so he's one of the most decent human beings i know but you know other people have that work ethic like samuel l jackson he got that work well he does denzel got that work ethic and i also realized i I told i told sam this lately like i learned so much from him at an early age you know he served as a mentor and he didn't really know it but every time i had a professional question about the business about representation about i remember even when i was talking about hiring hiring diddy i remember calling sam jackson and i remember his exact response i said you know i'm thinking about you know diddy for this show what do you think he was like well one thing is that they'll be sharpening their pencils so the people that don't want him to succeed they'll sharpen their pencil and the people that do want him to succeed they'll sharpen their pencil (laughs) so everybody will be talking about it so (laughs) if you think you can get it out of him i think it's a great thing to do you know so you know he's uh sam is you know He's great. He reminds me like we're from the South. He's from the South. I'm from the South. Uh, his middle name is Leroy. My middle name is Leroy. You know, but he he reminded me that we're from the South where people get up and go to work every day. Where grown people get up and go to work. That's what we do. So as he's gone into his professional life, he's like, you know, it's not about the money. He's not chasing the money. He's like, that's what I do. I get up and go to work like my like my mom got up and went to work and provided for me it's like my mother you know who's a single parent provided for me so it's about that's why i get annoyed when i'm not on a project or i'm not in rehearsal it's not about the money it's about like i feel like i'm not being as adult as i should be i need to work and i came from a family that you know they were sharecroppers and they were, you know, they, they weren't afraid to work. So if somebody, if I lost my job today, if somebody said, oh, you can't direct anymore, I would hate that. But it's like, I'm not afraid to, you know, I'm not afraid to dig a ditch. I'm not afraid to get in there and make some sandwiches, you know, whatever it takes to provide for your family. Yeah, because I think you told me, too, that at one point when you were talking to Diddy about the original thing, I think you, didn't you say you gave him a copy of the script and you were like, if you have any questions, you can just call me. And mm-hmm. then you, after that, like, he all, did <laughs> all the time it would be just middle of the night middle of the day yeah he's great he'll be like hey it's, we're in toronto and filming the film and he had a question he's like it's four o'clock in the morning what's up man you all right no no no. i'm sending a car for you like uh what do you want what you want to eat i'm gonna have the <laughs> have the cook make you some stuff because i got this question I'm, I'm like you know i'm just like i'm just stuck i said man you know it's like but i told you you could call me so <laughs> i'll be ready so he sent a car, and, you know, and we had some great times together. But that's also, too, I mean, one of those guys, I mean, because, you know, he's one of those guys that I think people, 
either like him or don't like him. Yeah. And um, well, that's anybody. In life. But yeah, but <laughs> but you know, guys, guys don't get there without some hustle, right? Like, for, there are definitely some people that one way or another may trip into it. But for the most part, when you see people that are that successful, you're not going mean, working. They got some hustle, and clearly he's got. And I really respect that. Well, what he's done, also, he went to two years of college, you know. But this his thing is. He thinks about what do I take, what do I need to be the best at what I'm getting ready to do. So whether that's running a marathon, most of us wouldn't think about that. But he's like, okay, what I need to do, you know, or what I need to do to do a play. I'm gonna hire this acting coach. I'm gonna do this. How many of us do that? I've talked to young people all the time, and it's like, you go, you're going in to get a role. Are you ready? Yeah. Well, what makes you ready? Well, um, I'm ready. I, I, I learned the lines. That's that's not enough. Right. You know, if they're casting Romeo and Juliet, there are thousands, millions of girls that age. So who who think they're actresses. So why are you going to get the role versus somebody else? So you got to like think that extra thing. Like, have I done everything that I need to do to get this role? Not to do the part, to get the role, because getting the job and doing the job are two different things. Uh, I can recite, oh, she doth teach the torches to burn bright right now. <laughs> so to your point, like lots of people know the words. I could not act it, right. <laughs> but I could say it. That's right. So, but And I got to talk about this because this is like the whole, I buried the lead an hour ago. Um, so that was, ama- you know, I'm sure that that's obviously a sick cast for Raising in the Sun. Oh, man. Audra McDonald is one of the best people to work with as well. She's and we great. actually saw her husband in Bull Durham here in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Will. And it was really good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, that was a great cast. Felicia Rashad. I still think Sana is talented and sexy and she's great. She deserves everything coming her way right now. She has a new TV show. So so then you did um, you did Fences mm-hmm. with Denzel and um and Viola Davis with the entire with the and, same cast that did the film. Yeah, and Vi- right, and Viola Davis. So, and then Stephen uh, McKinley Henderson. As and well. then who? And then Sam's wife did. What did you do with her? She did a Raising in the Sun with Denzel. Oh, that's right. And that Diane Carroll was on, and then that didn't work out. And then Latanya came in to play the mother, and um, Denzel was great, and Sophie Okonedo and Aniki Noni Rose. That was a great cast too. And that's what's wild because and Stephen McKinley Henderson. Unless I'm getting it backwards, so. Denzel and Viola won Best Actor for Fences. Tonys. Yeah, we got nominated for 10 Tonys. For and that. You Include, I got nominated And then you too. didn't win Best Director. But then you won Best Director for Raising in the Sun. Right. Well, also, the, the other part of that story is, that's why, like August Wilson used to say, we're not owed the, the fruits of the rewards. We're just owed the work. And, um, oh, that's so, good. So when I did uh, Raising the first time, we got nominated for like six or seven Tonys. You know, every design area, sets, costume, lights, every acting, Sanaa, Audra, Felicia, the play got nominated. But that was one where um, where the director didn't get nominated. And Felicia, was, Felicia Rashad would say, we're like, I guess the play directed itself. Like, how can, you, <laughs> how can the play be nominated? Every design element and every actor but the, but you weren't directed as director. You weren't nominated as director. And then, you know, Fences, we got nominated for 10. I got nominated for director, but I didn't win. And then Raising in the Sun, um, I got nominated and I won, but Denzel didn't get nominated, which made no sense because he was the star 
uh, male lead in that and did a great job. So I'll say this. All subjective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'll say this. Cause, but the Tony Award, for those of you that don't know, this is the Oscar of the theater world. Mm-hmm. It's the Grammy of the theater, right? It's the top of the food chain, right? right. And it's more difficult because it's live. Correct. So, and I know you've gotten this question a million times and I almost feel trite for asking it, but I have to because I don't even think I've ever even asked you this personally. What's that like? Like when you're sitting there and you're around, because here's the thing. I know how humble a guy you are and I know how you don't think of yourself as Kenny Leon, the figure. I mean, you think of yourself as the guy that just goes and does the work Mm -hmm. and you're interested in the product and what you put out. You're not thinking about yourself. But like you're sitting there with your peers and these titans in the in that world and and I think this for any time anybody wins like I think about watching old videos and when Sidney Poitier won the mm-hmm. Oscar or when Halle Berry won you know and all this but like I just can't imagine like sitting there amongst just imagine sitting with people that all do what you do they're all immensely talented and well, they single you out and say come up here and yeah. we're gonna recognize you as the best. Even though, right, it's not really because there. I mean, there's everyone. There's amazing people that do That's amazing right. work. I think that the first time, if people were really honest, the first time that you win one, it is sort of surreal. You know what I mean? Because I remember being inside Radio City Music Hall, and you're not thinking they're gonna call your name, right? But when they did, you know, I just it was unreal. And I remember standing, I remembered in my mind, it's like early in the week they said, if you happen to win and they call your name, you have a minute and 30 seconds. You have 90 seconds from the time <laughs> you call your name. So then that's the first thing jumped in my mind, right? And I didn't even turn to kiss Jennifer, you know, I was like, because I was just so spaced out. And the right before the category, uh, the cameraman says to me, Mr. Leon, and he was right to my left, kind of knelt down on the aisle. And he says, I just, I got a feeling you're going to win. I am a huge fan of oh, yours. Oh, wow. So I'm like, oh, God. He says, so I, I want to get a good shot. So just look this way. So I'm preparing to like, okay. Uh, I don't How do want, I look when I don't get it? I don't want to. Yes. I'm just uh, <laughs> what am I going to say? Because I remember that one time Sam should have won the Academy. And he was like, he's like, fuck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was like trying not to do that. And I was just going to be realized. I said, why is this guy messing with me? And then when they call my name after the commercial, I'm like, oh, my God. And I just sort of space, and I just got 90 seconds, 90 seconds. So I get up, sort of like light on my feet. And I heard someone, and it's Radio City Music Hall, it seats about 6,000 people. So you look back because someone said, we love you, Kenny Leon. And that broke me because I said, of all these people in here, of all the artists, of all the producers, there is someone on that upper balcony who paid to go see one of my productions, whether that was in Atlanta or Boston or Seattle, somewhere, and they paid their money to come to the Tony Awards because they were rooting for me to win something that I wasn't even thinking about winning. And when they said that, I got emotional. And so the time from that moment that that woman shouted to the time me stepping on the stage, I was really just like, wow. That is so mean. That's what theater does. And then to hug uh, Clint Eastwood, you know, uh, as a guy who's been, you know, uh, I don't necessarily like his politics, but I like his his 
He's a hell of a director. He's a he's a great director and a great actor, and I love watching his films and and the fact that he gave that Tony to me, that meant a lot to me as well. And you know, I was slightly nervous. And I looked in and saw looked into those six thousand faces, and all I could think of to say was Denzel, Denzel, Denzel. <laughs> and I said it three times because I was trying to figure out what I was going to say, <laughs> what I was going to say next, you know. And then I talked about how important you know it was to have education, the artistic education in our school systems. And I think that the fact that we're taking music and sports and arts out of our schools, I think we're, we're, we're not uh, developing as greater, well-rounded individuals as we could, and that hurts me. Well, yeah, and also because there's, right, like there's more, like life, again, I'll use the word color, but like to me, art, music, that's the color in life, right? Like mm -hmm. the outlines or the, the you know, is work and math mm -hmm. and you know the skills you need to go do your job but the right. thing that fills all that white space you know in between the right. the, the lines is all these things that enrich our lives and make us feel i think like, i think that all that all those the arts music whatever they help us discover our truest selves everything else helps us prepare for a job so for me it's like how can we help this person discover more about themselves? That you discover more about yourself through a creative sensibility. You don't discover more yourself about like, okay, let's make all these people just alike so that you can go into this place and you can make this kind of money doing this kind of thing. You also want to stimulate our creative sides because your creative side is individual worth. But also really great art, too, is educational in a sense that, you know, and I'll, I'll use True Colors examples. So, um, you know, I've always been a person, again, since college and kind of the whole Bobby Kennedy sort of thing, um, been a tried to be a student of Dr. King, you mm -hmm. know, and the things he did. And um, when I went to see On the Mountaintop, um, having read books and listened to audio of speeches, even though it was actors there's so much more to see it. And even though that obviously is fiction, right. Mm -hmm. In a sense of, you know, it's, it's not a, the play is not about the play mm -hmm. is effectively about the night before he's killed. Mm -hmm. And it's a conversation he has with a maid mm -hmm. at the hotel mm -hmm. um, in Memphis. Play written by Katori Hall. Yeah. Who was a young playwright, right? Like mm -hmm. that was pretty, that was one of her early, I mean, isn't she really young? I mean, I remember She's meeting, 30 something, yeah. I remember meeting her at the, at the pre at the uh, patron party or whatever when mm -hmm. we went, but um, so it's not real. It's not like it's a reenactment of him, you know, right. on the bridge or whatever, but all of a sudden it started to create connective tissue between the factual things that I knew and the emotional side of Dr. King and that whole thing, mm -hmm. because it's about him. Well, the interest to me, it, it humanized Dr. King. So it's like, yeah, he does all these political things that we read about and it was important. But when you realize he was just a man just like you, he had a beating heart, he loved family, he loved women and appreciate beauty like all of us men do. Uh, and he had fears so and he had, he had hopes fears, and he, he had doubts, he yeah. smoked cigarettes, he used profanity once in a while. You know, so it was nothing in the play that was not 
true. Right, right, but I mean just the, the dialogue itself wasn't yeah, ripped from a absolutely. text. And yeah. I think that's what happens. Sometimes when we put our heroes up on a shelf so high our young people can't reach them, that doesn't help us. Yeah, and so the same thing. So, like, for me, again, this just became like a compendium to the factual information I had. But mm-hmm. it helped to breathe life into it, right? To make Absolutely. It, to make it real. Right. And so same thing with, like, Mo Better Blues. Because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a musician. Like, I, I play guitar, and I, mm-hmm. I'm a music person. And that was about the, oh, my gosh, I feel bad now because I can't remember the name of the record label. But it was about, a, um, you know, it the jazz you know, or the blues and the artists that came through mm-hmm. in the twenties, I think it was the tens and twenties. I don't remember. But basically, you know, it was about this record label that was based out of Detroit that mm-hmm. they actually, it was, I think it actually was a manufacturing facility and they just started to press was records. Stacks? No, 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 no Cadillac it, records. Maybe no. that was it. No, that was another movie. No, but anyways, mm-hmm. so, but it takes you through this journey of like the development of music and as an art form and culturally how, you know, the, but again, like as a person that loves music, that's a real piece of history that you get mm-hmm. to see that you get to see people represent in a real way, like as if you were there, which is so much different than reading in a book or, you know, doing whatever. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the things for me that's so great about art. I mean, I love music, right? And it's the same thing about songs. Like there are, you know, these are all ways that through the arts that the other thing is oral history, right? Which to your point is such a huge part of the black community because they weren't allowed to have written history, mm-hmm. right? When they were slaves. Mm-hmm. And so that's why you hear about spirituals and song and the mm-hmm. ways that they were the only way they could think to protect mm-hmm. what people knew. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's why I love music because it evokes emotion, but also it's a way to sort of immortalize and, and canonize ideas and thoughts and, you know, mm-hmm. things that are happening at the time, big ideas, small ideas, like they're all. So, I mean, I'm the same way. I mean, I, you know, again, I didn't, come to music and come to the theater and arts and stuff until much later in life. I mean, my, I was pretty much like do my schoolwork and go play sports. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's just so, I mean, again, like I, I think that it's not just, I think people that are really narrow minded and say those kinds of things, like especially about funding and stuff, I think they think of it as fluff and really it's not fluff. It's the meat of who we are and, mm-hmm. and what we're trying to be. How was it? Um, well, you weren't there, but uh, Holly was there last week. I got the Mr. Abbott Award, right? And that's that given every two years to directors who who have served the community, but they vote. We're voted on by the union of directors, so it's really you know like Mike Nichols got it, and George Wolf got it, James Lapine, and I got it uh, this year. But at the end, you know, when they said we don't want you to pre- prepare to say anything, but you probably should speak for three minutes. And but I remember quoting something from uh, this woman, Catherine. Forget her last name. But anyway, what she and uh, forgive me for paraphrasing this, but what she was talking about, like the only thing after we're gone, you know, after civilization is gone, what's left is the art. You know what I mean? It's like that's what people discover. Whether that was songs that were left, or poems that we were left, or you know, old movies that we saw, but it's like, that's what's, that's, that's what people leave behind is their art. You know, that's, you know, so. Well, a huge reason, I mean, that's a big reason why, honestly, I've been motivated to do this um, because, um, you know, I think for me, conversation is such an important part of the human experience. Again, it's back to just engaging with another person. Cause like mm-hmm. I've learned, I've learned a ton just in the last 
like talking to you just in the last mm-hmm. hour and it's helped me broaden you know but we don't do a very good job of capturing those things mm, I, I mean you know they happen and so part of this is just there's people i respect and there's people that i think are super fascinating and mm. but so you know this will go out and there'll be people that'll listen to it but i now i have this mm-hmm. so forever until i'm gone mm. i can go back to this and listen to it again you say, what the hell was he talking about? <laughs> no. But we're people that want to go, you know, and I just think that those are so, I mean, you know, we take pictures all the time, you know, we do True. whatever, but we don't take snapshots of, of conversation. And so part of the driver for this was like, I just want to talk to people I really like and really, mm-hmm. you know, like to talk to and, and just have it because. That's like, good. I wish, yeah. I wish that yeah, young people would like, like you said earlier, talk to their grandparents or talk to the other Absolutely. generation get stories that you're not because they're not gonna always be here and you got that man that would be well that know my dad i mean you know my, my dad dying made me think about so many things and one of the things was is like man why don't i just go stick an iphone up under his nose oh. and just say and t- hit record and just be like talk tell you me about what? growing up in a mill village in middle georgia in 19 you know Whatever. in 1955 what happened uh, when my friend bill nunn passed away radio rahim and I was probably closer to him than any other male friend, and maybe maybe Sam Jackson, but but um, I remember after he passed, I would just call his phone to listen to his voice. Say, hey, you reached Bill. Uh, I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Peace. Thanks. You know, I just remember it. And then one day I called it, and um, you know his family had you know. Yeah. It was gone. And I was like, <laughs> his voice is gone. That's all I had of his other but I do have his movies. But sure. in terms of him talking, if I had thought about it, I was like, Look, man, let's have a conversation, you know what I mean? Um, and that last time I saw him we were sitting on the porch and we talked about life and death and spirituality and what we meant to each other and, and him knowing that he was gonna pass, you know, three or four weeks after we last saw each other, you know. That was a uh, you know, but then again, I got it in my head, you know, so is it better to 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 just have it in my head, to have that memory? It's like when people go see a good play, sometimes you can't film a play, but you can go and it's going to make you think in a certain way or it's going to open a door that wasn't open for you. So it's not that you need that preserved forever, you know, like on a painting or in a movie theater or on a TV theater is different you walk because you're breathing the same air as everybody that's with you and it's one particular specific audience just that night and you walk away with it and you have that image and those thoughts and that air in your brain and you carry that memory with you you know as long as you're here well there's something to be said for and you can share that like five million times with five million different people. I saw this play last night, you know, and this is what I thought about it, you know? So that's the beauty of that. Well, there's something to be said for shared experience, right? It's, it's definitely more powerful, right? I I think, I mean, Mm -hmm. I think that, that shared experience is, um, you know, the ability to say I was here or I was with people when this happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I think as a people, we have a natural yearning to want to connect with something. Some of us do. Right. I mean, I know there are people that don't, but I think people that aren't psychopaths or sociopaths, I mean, that, you know, tend to want to connect right with other people. And those types of things are definitely 
which again, like I'm making a case for recording stuff in this thing. But one of the things that drives me crazy is like when you go to a concert and people have their phones up the whole time. And I'm like, there's this amazing thing happening in front of you and you're staring at it on this little screen. It's like, just put the damn phone down and take in what you're like, take in what's happening. Right. Like just try to enjoy. It's so funny. I I felt that way up until last week. Oh yeah. (laughs) No, really? Cause I understand what you're saying. And you, uh, that's what I feel. But I went to see my friend Ariana Grande invited me to a concert last week. She was in Atlanta. And I took a friend and his daughter, who was just a huge Ariana Grande fan. And, man, she has a – people don't realize how huge her catalog is, man. That girl, she's only 23. She got pipes, too. and She's great, man. So she's sitting there, and for the first time, I saw someone in a modern age – relate to an audience and they had a, you know she had young kids there old people there the parents there yeah everybody she related to the audience and she related to the technology and i was like whoa so she was like she gave time for us to you know sh- sh- shine the light on her then she noticed people was taking pictures of her and then she was like okay now if you like this song you got to scream with me so that the vocal apparatus became more than applauding. She wasn't going. She wasn't going against it. Like <coughs> applaud. Well, they can't applaud because they got phones in each hand. That's <laughs> right. the modern audience. Right. So they can't applaud. So don't go. That's old school. <coughs> so what she's doing now is like, so vocally, the louder you scream, that's an appreciation. That's taking the place of applauding. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. I was like, whoa, I get it now. They're applauding with your voice and you're engaged in it and she's working with the technology and I was like, that's the future, working with the technology instead of, but up until last week, I was like, well, it's, you can't see the talent because you got the phone in between you and the talent, but it's, it's just, I got it different now and and it's because that artist, she, she understands how to work with the technology and to work with the different generations in the audience and I was like, I'm impressed. Look at you learning from the youngsters. I learned from her, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming in. Hey, man, I'm glad you're doing this talking podcast. With I hope it goes well. I hope at least a few people listening to it and get back to you and tell you how much you meant to their lives. Well, I've already gotten great feedback just from the couple of things I've done. And, you know, like I said, I mean, it's something I would listen to. Like mm-hmm. if someone else, because I find myself just, I like listening to people you know, again, that are interesting and they mm-hmm. talk about stuff. So, I mean, it's, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm weird that way, but again, it's because I enjoy, they they enjoy listening to this good Southern boy <laughs> athlete, you know, recently turned Former. to the arts, uh, <laughs> you know, the who, and you know, you don't tell them how technical you are. Cause when I first got my film room, you know, I had to call Sean, please come help me. Fi- I don't know how to get on the screen. I don't know how to get Netflix pulled up. So you're a very talented and a very caring, passionate brother. And I appreciate you. No, same thing, man. And I'm, I'm proud that you're to call you my friend. And I, I mean, I'm yeah. so glad we've gotten a chance to get to know each other over the years. And I guess Holly, you know, I tell people all the time, like life is so funny. Like, you know, you, you when, like you know holly and is involved in so many things you know Mm -hmm. is because of what she does and i remember when she came and she's like there's this theater company and um and i actually can't remember if it was through jen that she jen uh, McEwen that she originally um got the first 
exposure to True Colors. But Holly, mm. you know, went to college as a theater major, so she has mm. theater before she got into news. Uh-huh. So theater is a huge has always been a big thing for her. But she's like, yeah, there's this thing and check it out. And I think they were talking about the board or whatever. And then that's when we met. And like again, like again, I'm so thankful for that because I mean, I you know, I I just love you to death, and I mm. I love I love the fact that we have a relationship. Um, and again, like I think I tell people all the time, it's like you just got to pay attention. Like you never know what life's gonna lob in front of you. You know what I mean? You just gotta keep life. Your, you gotta keep your eyes open, right? Because there yeah. might be something really cool that just kind of passes by, and you gotta yeah. reach out and sort yeah. of grab it. So I mean. This is um this is just a chance for me to explore that with people that whatever. And at some point I'll abuse our friendship too and be like, Hey, can you will you if I email Tori, will you see if he'll call in and Skype and do one of these or somebody like that? So <laughs> um but um you know, true colors okay. theater, go to plays, um, go support any theater, right? That's right. It doesn't matter support which one all it is. Theater, right. <laughs> so it'll make you more curious about some other theater. So. Yeah, and um, you know, Expose your kids to these things. Like yeah. these are things that your kids can, you know, go see and um, go to True Colors. Um, you said that. Uh, go. Uh, I meant what I meant to say was come to the Golf and Gala if you can. May nineteenth, May twentieth. If you're in come Broadway, go to TrueColorsTheater.org. Come to Broadway, see Children of a Lesser God, and I'm doing something else there next year too. But I think that's the next thing I'm doing, and I'm doing this new show called Cotton for. Uh, for Fox and Sony Pictures. Oh, you didn't tell so me about So it's going to be a 10-part miniseries. About what? That me and L.A. Reid are doing. It's called uh, The Cotton Club. It's about the origin <gasps> of the cotton club no. in 1920s New York. But we're going to be inspired by the 20s, but make uh, make the music sound now. And so every week, so it's dealing with the mafia and the relationship between the entertainers but it's in that community, but it's also dealing with... Um, with um, so was the original Cotton Club like Cab Calloway and that? Yeah, 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 that place. You know, it was like black entertainers were allowed to go there, but it was in the black community. But blacks weren't allowed technically to be in the audience. But most of the arts, the artists performing, were black. So, and L.A. definitely knows a thing or two about. L.A. is great. <laughs> L.A. is great. So we're gonna, you know, we this is the first time we've worked together. So hopefully we'll be shooting a pilot of pilot of that soon. Well, man, you know, again, let's do this again sometime. Absolutely, man. Good now luck that to we've you. now that we've covered all the basics, then next time we can focus on uh, we can just take all this and apply it to current events, mm-hmm. and we can talk about um, the Lakers because I wanted to get into that. We're not talking about the Lakers, no, man. This is the last <laughs> thing I'm doing, man. No, man. I'm a Laker fan, but. Until the Lakers come back, I'm a Golden State Warrior fan. All right, okay. I'm West Coast. I'm West Coast until the Lakers. We're going to be back next year, too. You know, and I don't even know if the the Warriors are going to, I mean, if uh, the Cavaliers are going to make it this year. But probably the Cavaliers and the Warriors. But I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if somebody that's from the East won. The East is always kind of the wide, like you just never really, you never can tell. Like it. No, the East, most of you know LeBron, whatever team LeBron's on is going to make the finals. Well, lately, like in the last. That's what we're talking about, lately. <laughs> if we want to go back any other time, we're going to talk about the Lakers. <laughs> Here we go. This is what I said. We got the most banners. This one I need to start talking about my boy Larry Bird. Um, I like Larry Bird, man. I wish the Indiana could have, Indiana should have won that first game, man. If they should have won that first game. They should have won that first game. Crazy recommendation if, out of the blue if you haven't read it. And now the book is probably 25 years old. But did you ever read his biography? Who, Larry Bird? Bird? No. It's called Drive. 
Mm. If you ever want to go pick up a, cra- a cool, he had crazy drive huh? book, I mean, yeah, well, his story is just fa- you know, because again, like he's a country boy, right? It's sort of yeah. He's from French Lick, Indiana. So like one of the things that's interesting too, like about that, that's sort of the reverse what we talked to other about culturally, right? Is you know, guys telling him that he wasn't athletic enough, mm. he wasn't fast enough, he didn't couldn't jump high enough to play, and he just wasn't having it. I love that thing with him. He and Magic, man. I saw that that documentary on that, man. That was sweet. My two I favorite love, players of all time. Love go through the sport of it. That was just great. My two favorite players of all time are Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Oh, yeah. Magic's a good guy. He I mean, and that goes he all lives the, right across from Sam. But that goes all the way back to um, when you know uh, Bird played at Indiana State and Magic was in Michigan State and they mm. played in the NCAA against each other. I mean, so it was even before. Mm. The pros, right? Because they played, I think, in the Final Four against each other. Wow. And, um, you know, but my high school basketball coach was a Magic fan. Mm-hmm. And so, and he played in college, and he was still young enough coaching us to where he could get out there and play. And so, like, he basically imitated, like, whenever he played with us, he tried to, you know, he would do, like, that was his guy. Magic. So, we got all this Magic influence. But that was a time when it was just, like, watching those guys do all that stuff was just that was a fun time when you had that the Lakers to me the like to me it's like plays you every every protagonist needs an equally strong antagonist right for it to work and that was just the time where like Laker, Laker Celtics was such a great rivalry that it made it made it interesting even if because I wasn't a Celtics fan I just like Bird I wasn't a Lakers fan I just like Magic mm-hmm. but like watching those guys battle I mean you know great. so it's uh but I know how much you love basketball mm-hmm. so uh um but we'll do some more. I'm, I'm going to have you in again since uh, it's a long drive for you. It's all of about uh, three quarters of a mile from here right. to get back to your house. Thank you, man. But thanks, everybody. Peace. For, yeah, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, again, you're here already, but it's TMIPod.com. You can find me on Twitter at, at Sean ATL, at S-H-A-W-N-A-T-L. And it's at, is it I am Kenny Leon yeah. on Twitter? Yeah, at I am Kenny Leon, Twitter and Instagram. At I am I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So thanks for sticking around. We will see you on the next episode. And until next time, press on.